the book of Joel. I feel like I need to give extra time to turn there because it's kind of hard to find. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, I would encourage you to use the Bibles that have been provided. You'll find the, um, the text for today on page 760. Page 760 in the blue Bible provided in the seat back in front of you. Or follow along in your own copy of God's Word. And we're continuing our, our study through the Minor Prophets. And for those of you who haven't been with us for the last two weeks, we just want to clarify, uh, minor doesn't mean less important. It just means smaller. It's smaller in content, smaller in size. Uh, it makes me think of an espresso versus an Americano, for those of you who know coffee. It's just as potent. It's just less large. <laughs> So that is what we're looking at. And this one in particular, only being three chapters, um, you'll see, I think, uh, the power of God's Word on display through these chapters today. Naturally, I'm not going to read all three of them to begin our time, but I think it would be wise for us to turn our attention to the heart of the book, which is verses 11 through 13 of chapter 2. Chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. One of the most fascinating books in my library has nothing to do with theology and everything to do with theology. It's a Nobel Prize-winning collection of essays and letters from survivors of the 1986 Chernobyl disaster, aptly titled, Voices from Chernobyl. The translator of this work writes a, a preface to help us understand the contents of the pages to follow. I'm reading here. On September 11, 2001, after the first hijacked plane hit the World Trade Center, emergency triage stations were set up throughout New York City. Doctors and nurses rushed to, hop to their hospitals for extra shifts, and many individuals came to donate blood. These were touching acts of generosity and solidarity. The shocking thing about them was that the blood and triage stations turned out to be unnecessary. There were very few survivors of the collapse of the two towers. The effects of the explosion and nuclear fire at the Chernobyl power plant in 1986 were the exact opposite. The initial blast 
killed just one plant worker. And in the next few weeks, fewer than 30 workers and firemen died from acute radiation poisoning. But tens of thousands received extremely high doses of radiation. It was an accident that produced, in a way, more survivors than victims. And this book is about them. The pages to follow then will chronicle the account of their suffering. Uh, the, the, the cancer, the radiation poisoning that they would experience is just actually a part of their pain. What the book, I think, does an effective job in conveying is the governmental frustration. The fact that those who were supposed to be in charge of this tragedy were being dishonest, underselling the actual events of that particular day, causing more and more people to suffer unnecessarily. And I think that we all, in moments of acute natural disaster, demand some type of explanation of those in charge. Okay, we we want to know, um, like, how did the government respond? Did they respond the right way? And then how can we ever keep this from happening again? People especially get worried about, okay, this happened this particular time. How can we avoid it in times to come? But it isn't just governments that are on the hook and people who ask questions. But oftentimes, for those who believe in God, the God of the Bible, or just some higher power generally, God gets grilled as well. Think about it. Think back to the last natural disaster that acutely impacted you, one that, that actually comes to mind September 11th is different because it seemed imposed upon us from the outside, but I remember something just a couple years later when those tsunamis would hit Sri Lanka and it seemed scores of thousands of people were swept into eternity. We ask questions. Eugene Peterson puts it this way. He says, when, when disaster strikes, understanding of God is at risk. Unexpected illness or death, national catastrophe, social disruption, personal loss, plague or epidemic, devastation by flood or drought, turn men and women who haven't given any thought to God in years, all of a sudden become instant theologians. Rumors fly. God is absent. God is angry. God is playing favorites, and I'm not the favorite. God is ineffectual. God is holding a grudge from a long time ago, and now we're paying for it. And with it come the responses of how do we avoid it? How do we keep God on our good side? How do we avert this in the future? Where did we go wrong in the past so that we can avoid the same thing in the future? We're looking for answers to avoid such tragic outcomes naturally. And I think what you'll find relieving is that a book like Joel actually renders for us the prophetic task of clarifying what God is up to in such moments 
and how we can respond. You want to know what God is up to when things just seem to be going really wrong in this world? That is the responsibility of the prophet. He is not only a foreteller, he is a foreteller. He interprets dramatic, dramatic events. Joel is doing this for the people of his day. Historians believe uh, that what is actually happening here is that Joel addresses an event, a natural disaster, that occurred to the people of God in very acute ways. But he scrubs the account of the historical details that would actually make it clear which particular tragedy he may be referring to. The only thing that's clear to us from reading Joel is that there was a locust plague, and it had devastated the nation. I'll describe this more in detail in a moment, but I want you to know that this isn't just some phenomenon of insects gathering upon a particular place. It was ecological disaster. People would die from this particular event. And Joel will capitalize upon it and say, God's up to something here. In this event, and in events like these, God is up to something, and you need to be aware of not only what God is doing, but how you should respond in the case of the greater judgment that these things predict. So that's the book of Joel in a nutshell. Uh, When disaster strikes, uh, what is God up to, and how should we respond? You'll notice as you read through the book of Joel, hopefully you've done it already this week, Uh, that this phrase, the day of the Lord, will recur time and time again. It's five times here in uh, the book of Joel. It's close to 30 times listed in the Old Testament. And it is the lens through which uh, Joel is going to interpret this particular event, this catastrophe. Now, the day of the Lord is a confusing thing for many of us who even who have grown up in church. Because when you hear it, you think, oh, day of the Lord, it must be a 24-hour period. But actually, as you read through the Bible, you find that there were many different events and times in history which were called the day of the Lord. And there were many more that are still to come. So it's not just a, a single event. It is actually something, and I'll give you some definitions here that may be helpful. The day of the Lord represents a decisive, supernatural, and invasive action of Yahweh to bring His plans for His people to completion. It's not a time necessarily, but a time frame. A time frame in which God intervenes in supernatural ways. See, like we look around in the world today and God is working, but He's working in natural ways. The seasons come and go in most places. But like there's just the the normal processes of life and we're not seeing these just radical invasions of God on the planet. But there are times, there are seasons where God pauses the natural, begins to work supernaturally, and this is the day of the Lord. It's when He's actively bringing about His plans for His people. Another has defined it this way. The day of the Lord is any dramatic action by Yahweh either to judge or to save. I think my favorite definition is this. Special sequences of time in which God interrupts world history to pour out special judgment or provide special rescue for His people. That's the day of the Lord. 
And so Joel here is being clear that this climactic event or catastrophic event that they have experienced actually isn't the day of the Lord, but it previews the day of the Lord. It previews the radical ways that God can and will intervene against His enemies and for His people. And he's saying, if you thought that was bad, you better be ready. It's really an amazing thing to consider. What we will ultimately have through these three chapters are preparations for this great and final day of the Lord. How do we prepare? How do we avoid uh, the disaster, if you will? If it's going to be worse than anything that has ever been seen on a natural scale here on this planet, what then can we do to change it? Well, through the lens of the day of the Lord, we're going to see just a few different aspects of this time frame. One is the punishment threatened. Two is the protection explained. And three is the prosperity described. That's the basic flow of the book. Punishment threatened, protection explained, and prosperity described. I'd first have you notice the punishment that is threatened in light of the day of the Lord. Uh, Look at chapter 1, and as you look at verses 2 and 3, you see the event described. He says, Hear this, you elders, give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days, or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. Notice, generational impact. I want this to go on forever. And they recount this one particular event in verse 4. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. What the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. And then everything that follows, friends, from verse 5 all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 20, is going to be a formal lament over what these locusts have done to the land that God had promised to Israel. Now, for us, uh, locust is just kind of a weird thing. I think most of us would assume that uh, a locust is something like a cricket or a cicada or, or maybe a grasshopper. What's fascinating is that a true, like, locust isn't just a grasshopper. It's basically a grasshopper with rabies, and I am not kidding. (laughs) So, doing some research on this and trying to figure this out, I I looked to some professionals on this particular one, and this is from Rick Overson of Arizona State University. Uh, He knows his bugs, and this is what he says. A, A locust is a special kind of grasshopper, And when the environmental conditions are right, usually when there's a lot of rainfall and moisture, something dramatic happens. They increase in numbers, and as they do, they start to sense the other locust around them. And then remarkable things begin to take place. They change their physiology. Their brain changes. Their coloration changes. Their body size changes. Instead of repelling one another, they become attracted to one another. And if those conditions persist in the environment, they try to start a march together in coordinated formations across the landscape. These swarms then become gargantuan masses of tens of billions of flying bugs. Now imagine this. Your normal grasshopper doesn't group up with other grasshoppers. These begin to work together. They form a mass And they range anywhere, this is mind-blowing, 
from a square third of a mile to 100 square miles or more. With 40 million to 80 million locusts packed in a half square mile, they bulldoze pasture lands in dark clouds the size of football fields and small cities. This is happening even in northern Kenya of late. One swarm, this was just a few years ago, was reported to be 25 miles long by 37 miles wide. It would blanket the city of Paris 24 times over. And they're ravenous eaters, of course. An adult desert locust that weighs about two grams, that's a fraction of an ounce, can consume roughly its own weight daily. And they're not picky at all. According to one organization, a swarm of just one square kilometer, which is a smaller one, a third of a square mile, can consume as much food as would be eaten by 35,000 people or six elephants in a single day. Now, lest you think that uh, this is just me being dramatic. Friends, this is not from a Christian. This is from NPR. This isn't some commentator, some preacher trying to like dramatize what, what potentially could have been happening here in Job 1. This is devastating. It's just unfamiliar. And so you begin to see the description, and he's like, Man, you, we need to cry about this. This is horrible. I mean, look at verse 6. He calls it a nation that has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has fangs of a lioness. This is metaphorical language. Notice what they do, that these things with these sharp teeth. Verse 7, it has laid waste to my vine and splintered my fig tree and has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Can you imagine that? We look at beautiful, lush, green, verdant, southwest Florida. I mean, just take this mass of land that's sitting beside us, and you can't even see to the street over there. There's so much stuff growing up. Could you imagine it all just being bare and white? Because the animals would even eat off the bark? When your population, when your food, excuse me, resources are limited to 10 to 20% of what was originally there, death would have been off the charts. And what Job is saying here is like, this is bad, this is real bad, God has allowed it to happen. And look at verse 15 of chapter 1, he's going to give you a little bit of theological explanation here. He says, alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. And as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. Notice this. Joel is not saying that even this locust event was one of these events called the day of the Lord. He is saying, this just reminds us, friends, that the day of the Lord is coming. For those of you who have ever lived in uh, Southern California, you can recall those tremors. Uh, that would come, that would be uh, the, the preview, the forecast for the greater earthquake still to come. What Joel is saying is that this particular event is just a tremor of what ultimately is going to be unleashed upon this world. And he's saying, you better be ready. The, the fact that he does remove some of the historical specifics, he doesn't even tell us what king he's prophesying to in this particular time, reminds us that he does not actually intend for us to only look at this one locust plague. He is enabling us to take any natural disaster and say, 
oh, that's just a small piece of what ultimately is to come. So he's trying to prepare us for the day of the Lord, and that's why he's describing this punishment ahead of time and saying, all right, here's a preview of it. It's what you've just experienced. But things go from bad to worse as we move from chapter 1 to chapter 2, because chapter 1 is just the preview. You want to see a real picture of what the day of the Lord will be like? Begin to look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Notice in verse 1, he says, Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains. A great and powerful people, their like has never been before nor will be again after them through the years of generations. And so he begins to describe this this event, and you can just imagine like someone living in the Midwest and hearing one of those uh, tornado alarms beginning to go off. The siren has been sounded. He is enabling you to envision this particular day. And what's so fascinating about chapter 2, especially for those of you who are students of good literature, you're going to notice that he will use some of the same imagery from the locust plague to describe the attack of a divinely empowered supernatural army that will be unleashed upon this world. Interpreters vary at this point. Some would say that what's happening here in verses 1 through 11 is just another locust plague. But as you read it, you're going to see this doesn't make sense. It wouldn't be another locust plague. You're also going to notice that some people would try to say, oh, well, this is just a preview of the Assyrian army that would one day come and conquer the land of Israel. I don't think it's just an army either either, when you see this description, especially since he says there will never be another one like it. I don't know about you, friends, but I'm pretty sure that uh, our United States army could probably beat the Assyrian army today if there was like a historic battle. There have been more ferocious militaries uh, than that of Assyria or Babylon. So I don't think that this exhausts it. What seems to be happening here is some supernaturally empowered entity that will exercise judgment on behalf of God, and it is absolutely horrifying. Please, let's read. It will blow your mind. Look at verse 3. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. And with rumbling of chariots they leap on the tops of mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire, devouring the stubble like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale like warriors. They charge like soldiers. They scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon and the stars are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. And then here's the ultimate explanation for what's going down. Verse 11. The Lord utters his voice before his army. 
For his camp is exceedingly great, and he who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Do you see what he's forecasting here? See, friends, you need some perspective. You need some perspective because Israel thought that the day of the Lord was going to be the day that God would come and send judgment upon all of Israel's enemies. And yet here, surprise, surprise, God is warning Israel herself that this army is coming for you. As I read this description here, I can't attribute these features to just normal human enemies or insects. In fact, when I was first reading this, the first thing that came to my mind is is Tolkien's uh, Army of the Dead. Maybe you remember that scene from the probably larger population that watched the movie as opposed to read the book of Return of the King. And they're in this climactic battle, and they've struck this deal with these guys under the mountain, and this this army of the dead is then unleashed upon uh, the invaders, and they just overcome everyone. It is something supernatural. It is ethereal. I mean, that seems to be the description of what is here. Like, God's army is going to come and decimate whoever is in his way in this particular time. And so we see a warning We see a question. Look again at the end of verse 11. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? How are we going to withstand this divine judgment from God when He creates His own army to attack? What are you going to do? You're going to outthink it? You're going to outstrategize? The solution then comes beginning at chapter 2, verse 12. And I think that here we need to pay special attention. We're talking about how to be prepared for the day of the Lord. We just saw in chapters 1, 1 through 2, 11, this punishment threatened in light of the day of the Lord. But I want you to notice here this next phase of preparation. He's going to give uh, some protection He's going to explain some protection. We move from punishment threatened to protection explained. How do we protect ourselves then against the day of the Lord? If God is going to, in a supernatural and special way, pour out his wrath upon all who stand against him, if he's going to ultimately exercise judgment in this horrific way, what do we do? How do we prepare? See, they thought that because they were Jews that all was well. I mean, they were the people of God. Uh, they were like, like Israel. They were the, the person of promise. But notice what God says to them in verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Do you see what he's saying here? He says, okay, Israel, here's how you will prepare. Here's how you can avoid God pouring out his judgment upon you in this special way. Tear your heart. 
turn to God. Actually, turn to God. We're talking about preparation. How to be prepared for the day of the Lord. And in this particular moment, we see in verse 12 that the way to prepare is to turn to the Lord. It's a funny thing that in this very passage, God is telling them to tear their hearts and not their garments. What does it mean to tear your heart? Why would anyone ever be tempted in any way to tear their clothes? Well, you may remember that in the ancient Near East, that the common sign of mourning, the common sign that something was wrong, would be for them to actually rip their clothes, put on sackcloth, and the externals were very important to them. In fact, when something was wrong, people would often even hire professional mourners to look sad on their behalf. And so in this particular instance, knowing that it was their cultural instinct to actually externalize some type of feeling of sorrow, the text is reminding us that in this we are not to just externalize repentance. It better be internal. It better be a part of us. It kind of reminds me of the tendency of someone who may be at a funeral and they're, they're wearing black and they've got, you know, the uncomfortable clothes on, and they've put themselves through the formalities of showing up to the actual event, and yet in this particular moment, you just see them kind of like taking it easy, shooting the breeze, uh, telling jokes. It just doesn't fit the moment. Uh, it, if you really want to express sorrow for a family in a time of need, it isn't just about your clothes. It's about what you do. It's about your spirit. And so here, God is saying, look, don't just deal with the externals. Don't just rest in the fact that you've been circumcised and that you show up and bring sacrifices to the temple. Don't just lean in on your national identity. Tear your heart. Turn to God. Don't make this a show. Make this a reality. And so the prayer of the prophet is that they would avoid the actual wrath of God by turning to Him completely. And notice the reason that He gives for this. He incentivizes this return in the second half of verse 13, saying, Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. Friends, I am disturbed by the tendency that we have to view the God of the Old Testament as the mean one. Do you know that tendency? <laughs> it's like the God of the New Testament, He's really nice and He's really gregarious, uh, but the God of the Old Testament, He just seems rather moody. Uh, friends, that is heresy to think that way. I, I'm warning you. What you see here in this text is a call to repentance, but listen, it is not just turn or burn. He is not just saying, all right, well, something horrible is going to happen to you, and if you don't actually submit to God, you're going to have a problem. He says, hey, something horrible will happen to you, but turn to God because He is gracious. He is compassionate. He is kind. He is merciful. He prefers. He prefers to show mercy and compassion over judgment. Turn to Him. And that's not New Testament. That is Old Testament God. 
He said, look, and for those who would say, well, God seems rather mean, why would he even warn them of the disaster in the first place? If God hated them, he wouldn't tell them what he was going to do to them. I don't know about you, but if I was fighting a foreign enemy, I don't think I would forecast for them when I would attack and how I would attack. I think I would want to take them by surprise. And in this particular instance, we actually see a forecast. He's saying, hey, this is going to happen to you if you don't turn. But turn, not only to avoid the judgment, but to embrace me who wants to show you love and compassion and mercy. The continual the, I mean, the text continues uh, where he says in verse 14, Who knows whether he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. He asks this rhetorically. He's confident. In fact, in verse 15 and 16 and 17, he is telling everyone to pay attention, to, to actually wake up, to respond in this way. And notice uh, what he says in the second half of verse 17. He says, Have everyone say and pray. Spare your people, O Lord. And make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? The whole point is, God wants us to return to Him in this way because it makes Him look good. He wants His special people to be treated specially. And so He says, return. So how then do we respond in light of this prophecy of the day of the Lord coming upon us? It's wholehearted repentance. <laughs> There's your preparation plan. You repent and you recognize God as compassionate and gracious and kind. He intends to show His love to you. And so the punishment is threatened. The protection is explained. And then this final aspect of preparing for the day of the Lord is listed in chapter 2, verse 18, to the end of the book. And this is where prosperity is described. Prosperity is described. At the day of the Lord, there is judgment, there is retribution, but there is also protection, deliverance, salvation, and reward. He wants you to get this. It's not all doom and gloom. Uh, notice what happens in verses 18 to 20. Here's a preview of the conclusion of the book. Then the Lord became jealous for his land. And had pity on his people. Why? Because they had repented. And then verse 19. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending you to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. And then that's the ecological reversal. Now notice the political reversal of the attack. Verse 20, I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea, his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things or terrible things, big things. He needs to be punished. Ultimately, this... What, Everything that was being forecast to happen on the day of the Lord, ecological disaster, military overthrow, is now reversed. In fact, it's reversed and exceeded. Instead of things just going back to the way they were, they actually get better. Notice the ecological reversal that he expands upon in verses 21 to 27. The world, as you think of it, the physical planet. He says, fear not, O land. <laughs> 
Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. And here's the results of God sending this supernatural rain. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sit among you. You will eat in plenty and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. And you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. Do you see this description? It is beautiful. He's saying that there will be this time of prosperity and beauty and satisfaction and joy that the people of God have not yet known. Have you ever had somebody just ask you, hey, if you're a follower of God, if you're a believer in Jesus, uh, why is your life just like mine? Why, are you, why, why does you know, like the stuff happen to you the same that happens to me? Why, don't, why doesn't it seem that, that you're experiencing any extra blessing? Friends, there is a sense in which we walk through this world and we experience the same trials and tribulations as the non-Christians around us. The Scriptures remind us that the rains fall on the just and the unjust alike. You have no special, physical, ecological advantage over a non-Christian in this moment of time. Can I just clarify that for you? You're just as human, and you still experience the curses of this fallen world in the same way as everyone else for now. For now. (laughs) The text is saying that for those who have truly turned to Yahweh, There will come a time in which there will be real, physical, tangible, tactile blessings that you will enjoy, things you can taste, things you can see, things you can hear. This is a beautiful promise. When God comes to make all things right on the day of the Lord, it will be a time of prosperity for His people. Not only are there ecologi- is there an ecological reversal, but there's also a spiritual reconciliation. Notice how when God acts in these radical and climactic ways, there's spiritual benefits as well. Let's first look at verses 28 and 29. It says, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Now, this particular passage has plagued many a Christian for a long time because it's quoted in Acts chapter 2. You may remember it. When Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, 
And he says, as they begin to speak in tongues, that the fulfillment of Joel is essentially happening here. And he reads this passage, verses 28 to 32, in its entirety and says, this is the fulfillment. Which puts us in a weird spot because we're wondering, okay, so does this mean that the day of the Lord has already come? (laughs) Well, friends, I'm reminding you that the day of the Lord, as we defined earlier, isn't just one particular day. It is any sequence of events in which God radically intervenes to accomplish His special plans of either salvation or judgment. And so in this particular instance, We know that this day of the Lord promise isn't just limited to one day future, but God has intervened in other climactic supernatural ways in times past. And one of the ways in which he did that was seen through the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. When he died on that cross and there was blackness and darkness and earthquakes, that was a radical intervention of God in which his own son would bear the wrath and the curse that we deserved on account of our sin. His actually rising again from the dead is something that was an indication that God was working in a supernatural way. That doesn't normally happen. He overcame death. And then when God would empower his church with the presence of the Holy Spirit, thereby sealing the promises of the new covenant seen in the Old Testament. We now have another uh, initial fulfillment of the day of the Lord. And I said initial, not climactic. My point is that what happened there in Acts 2 and when, when the Spirit was given to the people of God was a fulfillment of this very passage. It says that the people of God will now have access to God in a way that they've never had before. Essentially, you'll note two things about the promise there in verses 28 and 29. There is intensity and inclusivity. Intensity and inclusivity. There is an intensity of this relationship with God. Whereas the Old Testament people of God viewed God distantly and they couldn't enter into his presence. Remember in the book of Exodus, they were scared to death to enter God's presence. And they said, give us an an intermediary, give us a prophet. God says, no, you'll be the prophet. You will have access to me in these special ways. You now will be close to me. One explained it this way, and I find this helpful. In other words, there would be, through this promise, a heightening of obedience and revelatory understanding of God. The Spirit, uh, the gift of the Spirit, connotes direct experience with God. The dreams, visions, and prophecies serve to authenticate the presence of the Spirit and to draw individuals into direct experience with God. Friends, you may not have dreams and visions in the way that the apostles did, but you have entered into direct experience with God. They never had that in the Old Testament. There was an intensity of relationship with God, but there was also something that had never been seen before either, and that was inclusivity. There was inclusion Basically, the Spirit, who in the Old Testament would just sometimes come upon a king or a a prophet or a judge, now would reside with all of God's people. Notice the text. 
It says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Listen to this. Even on the male and female slaves or servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Now, the spirit's ministry will not be limited to a select few, but everybody, regardless of their economic status, regardless of their gender, they would have access to God in this special way. You need to keep this in mind, friends, that um, most people in the Old Testament did not view themselves as having this equal relationship with God. Everything was mediated through a hierarchy, some more special person. And in fact, women especially were viewed upon with great suspicion. I think contrary to the creation ideal, it's just the way that sin corrupts the human line of thought, but some Jews would even pray And you may remember this. I thank you, God, that I was not born a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. And what does the text say here? It doesn't matter your status. It doesn't matter your sex. You will have special access to God. The possession of the Spirit would never again be the restricted preserve of a few it be for all who are in the lord i think friends as even as i'm describing this i can see it on your faces uh, you're not that impressed oh great thanks <laughs> i'm glad i have access to the holy spirit um, i i think that we've got a little bit of uh, chronological snobbery going on i'm just gonna be really transparent Let me illustrate this with um, something as simple as running water and electricity. My children, me, I don't know anybody in here who's going to have their mind blown if I step out to the water fountain in the back and press the button and water comes out. But you rewind the clock merely 200 years, and some people may have a heart attack if they saw that. Just got new lights put into the building in the last few weeks. And you know, what the, you know what the conversation was? The shape of the lights, the brightness of the lights. You know what the real conversation is here? Lights, period. <laughs> They're not candles. Somehow, electricity has been harnessed uh, so that like, these things work for us. And guess what? When I flip that light switch in my house, none of the kids are running around like it was some new thing. It's just lights. And I think what you may have forgotten, dear church family, and I say this in kindness, is that the indwelling presence of the Spirit that has become so normal to you is so special. It's so unique. You, for thousands of years, the people, like only certain people of God ever had access. And now, post this event, people will now be able to enter into the presence of God and listen to this, still speak authoritatively on his behalf. 
I know that I stand up here and that I preach, but I still have the same authority that you have. I've only just been granted some recognition by the congregation that, oh yeah, well, we trust this guy to be able to handle the word in this way. But frankly, friends, all of you who are in Jesus have this now revelatory authority to declare what God has already disclosed to people who have not yet heard. And that is a privilege. That is something formerly unknown. And what Joel is saying is this was a fulfillment of God's climactic intervention. He has intervened in radical ways to enable you to represent him here on this earth. Very practically, friends, I would remind you that speaking on God's behalf, whether that be in the proclamation of the gospel or the clarification of what his law demands, is not your burden, it is your privilege. The Spirit has enabled you to represent God in a way that otherwise had never been experienced on a large scale in the history of redemption. The benefits for those who have repented and continue. There's this ecological reversal. There's spiritual reconciliation and enablement. Notice final salvation in verses 30 and 32. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now this is describing something that has not yet happened even though there was darkness when Jesus was crucified, the moon stayed the same. We haven't seen this yet. It says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. They shall be saved from that climactic expression of God's wrath that will be poured out on this planet. And notice it says, For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. What the text is reminding us is that there will still be this pouring out of God's wrath on this world, but those who are in Christ, those who have returned to Yahweh through Christ, will not experience this wrath. They will be saved. Theologians differ on this. Some people say that they will be saved through it. Some people say they will be saved from it. This has a big bearing on those who would like to enter into eschatological debates about uh, the tribulation and about whether Christ will return before or after. My personal belief is that we would be saved from it. It seems to me that all of God's wrath was poured out on Christ for those who were elect and those who would believe. And there is no wrath to be had for those who in Christ, but God still will pour out His wrath in a special way for all those who have neglected the rescue that's been provided in Jesus. And so here, Romans 10, 13 is quoting this very passage, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You'll be rescued from God's wrath. And whether you agree or disagree with me on that point is okay. What we can ultimately agree on is that God's climactic expression of wrath, which just begins with this, but actually continues with an eternity in hell separated from Him, will not ever be known by His people, by His people who have called upon Him, by His people who have confessed Him as Lord, Romans 10, 9 says. 
To call out on the name of the Lord, friends, means the same thing as turning to God earlier. It doesn't just mean you prayed some kind of prayer or you repeated the magical formula. What it means is that you were depending on Yahweh's provision for protection. And friends, that provision came in our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you are confessing Him, relying upon Him, clinging to Him, you're safe. And so the the text is reminding us of these benefits. You're safe from this this expression of God's wrath in this final day. There is final salvation. And then here's the last thing, the last benefit, the last description of prosperity that we'll enjoy at the day of the Lord. It's in chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. And I'll hit it quickly so we can wrap up. There is ultimate domination. There is ultimate domination. Uh, this, this one blows my mind because uh, earlier uh, there was this prophecy that God would send his army and he's going to send it even against his own people. But here it's going to be clear. God will still send his army and there still will be a defeat, but it will not be his people who experience this defeat. Now it will be all of their enemies, everyone who stood in opposition to them. In verses 1 through 3, you actually see this description of all of the nations who have opposed the people of God being called to this valley of decision. This is going to be a climactic battle. And look at verse 4. He actually begins to list why all these people are going to be brought to this special expression of judgment, all these nations. And he mentions Tyre and Sidon and Philistia. And he says, look, you guys, in verse 5, have taken my silver and my gold, uh, my rich treasures in your temples. You've uh, desecrated the temple. Notice the other things that the nations have done. Uh, You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. They were exiled. He says, you mistreated my people. Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them, and I will return your payment on your own head. Everything you ever did to my people. Every way you ever harmed them, every way you ever maimed them will be revisited upon you. Verse 8, I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabians, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. You know those covenant curses we were reading earlier? I get it. You're thinking, man, what a downer. I can't believe we just read, uh, you know, like 20 minutes what it felt like of curses from God. Friends, the reason why we did that, the reason why we're reading through Deuteronomy 28, 29, and 30 is because all of the, like, just terrible things that are going to happen either to the people of God if they don't repent or to the nations have been predicated upon those very verses. God said, there's a real penalty for disobeying me. I mean, it's going to be bad. It's going to be really bad for you if you disobey me. You'll be cursed. You'll be cursed in the ways that I've described. And notice what's happening here. God's people are protected from the curse, and God's enemies now receive the curse that he was going to bring upon his people if they disobeyed. Now that curse gets shifted from them, I mean from the people of God to the enemies of God. And he's saying, everyone who opposes me, who doesn't come to me in faith, is going to fall. And and verse 9 is great. I I would summarize verses 9 through 11 as bring it on, because God says, all right, we are going to fight. We're going to fight it out. And this is what he says, proclaim war among the nations, consecrate for war, stir up the mighty men, let all the men of war draw near, let them come up. 
And then as a reversal of some other promises in the Old Testament, he says, Beat your plows into swords, your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. He says, everybody, I don't care who it is, if you're a farmer, bring your tools. Come on, we're going to throw down. Now, notice in verse 11, he says, all right, you come, let's fight, and let's go to the valley of decision. Why don't you come up to this climactic place where I will exercise judgment upon the nations? And you're reading this, and you're beginning to think like, oh, man, there's going to be a big battle. There's going to be a showdown. Like, this is going to be like an all-out war. And then you find out in verses 13 and following that it's actually no contest. Instead of it being a military event, uh, what, what is pictured here is God mowing them down like somebody with a scythe would cut wheat. The picture is actually uh, God trampling on them like somebody would trample on grapes to make wine. <laughs> it says there's not even a battle. It's just judgment. You thought it was going to be a fight. You will be decimated. Verse 16 is so strong. It says, The Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earthquake. But the Lord is a refuge to His people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. God is saying, I will pour out my judgment on the nations. Friends, you read Revelation sometimes and you get confused. What it is, is God pouring out His judgment upon the nations. It is a graphic description of that. And here's what the text is saying. Don't worry about it. That's not judgment poured out on you who have sought refuge in me. That is judgment poured out on all those who have rebelled against me. What is ultimately unsettling actually becomes comforting because we realize that all Enemies to God and His plans and His people will be fully and finally eliminated. And this leads to great reversal. Verses 17 to 21, you see this description of everyone knowing that God is God, that the Lord is God. Verse 18, the mountains will drip with sweet wine, the hills shall flow with milk, all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. This is a beautiful picture. Enemies eliminated, verses 19 and 20. Uh, Egypt, gone. Judah, the special land of God, will be inhabited forever. And Jerusalem to all generations. And here's the climactic end, verse 21. I will avenge their blood. Blood I have not avenged. For the Lord dwells in Zion. Friends, I think that the, the message of the book of Joel could be summed up in just this little anecdote. Knowledge of someday changes today. <laughs> Knowledge of someday changes today. You think about that. Some of you are more present-oriented people. You just take it a day at a time. But the truth is, there are days, appointments, events that you need to be aware of and you adjust for. I don't care if it's a visit to the doctor or if it's a wedding. Uh, knowledge of someday changes things today. What Joel has tried to do through this is tell you about the someday. Right now, God is working in very natural ways. Supernaturally, of course, He has afforded us the ministry of His Spirit. But outside of that, things tend to run kind of like they did a few thousand years ago. But what he's saying is there will come a time, there will come a moment very soon, 
in which he will radically invade and he will right all wrongs and reward all the righteous. And you need to be prepared. You're prepared as you think about the punishment that is described. You are prepared as you think back to the protection explained. And you're prepared as you contemplate the prosperity that is described only for the people of God. And so knowing that that one day is coming, how should things change for you today, right now? I only know of of, of two decisions, really, that could be made in this moment. First is that some of you have a decision to make to turn to the Lord. You have not yet turned to Him in faith. You have not yet turned from your sin. Yeah, maybe you have the externals and the religious stuff. Uh, Maybe you've dressed the right way. Uh, Maybe you were sprinkled as a kid at the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, Maybe you've been religious and nice. And just on the outside, you may even identify with the Christian. You know, when the state of Florida gave you your license plate, you may have even put, in God we trust, on the back. But, Those are the externals. What about your heart? Have you turned to the Lord through His Son, Jesus Christ? Is your trust and faith in Him alone? That decision will prepare you for that day. And for those who have already made that decision, there is a deliverance to be enjoyed. I know it seems that the world is a flaming mess right now. And I know, forget the larger scale, we can't even control our own little lives. We can't keep ourselves healthy. We can't protect our wealth in the ways that we want to. We can't manage our relationships in the ways that we want to. I mean, sometimes our life seems like a hot mess. And yet the text reminds us that there is a day in which all those wrongs will be made right. All those enemies will be eliminated. You will enjoy the special and real promises of God. And so for all here today, in light of that day, there is either a decision to be made or a deliverance to be enjoyed. Let's pray. Father, prepare us for that day. Or even through just the events of the last 30 minutes, we're reminded that disaster can come at any time. And Father, my fear is that there may be some here this morning who are not prepared for that. Or draw them to Yourself. May they see Your compassion and Your grace and and Your mercy that's extended to them in Christ. And may they be saved even today. And for those who have already turned to Christ, oh, assure them, Father, please assure them of the deliverance that You have fully and finally provided. That the wrath has been satisfied Uh, Through Christ and, Lord, all of the opposition, all of the enemies, all of the wrong will be made right one day. Encourage us, please, in the chaos of this life and the confusion and pain that we face in these days with the hope of that day. In Jesus' name, amen.